Good morning, Trailview Church. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Today we're reading from Mark 4, verse 30 through 34. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it's sown... It grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke to the the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. As you do, my name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Trailview. And if you're new here, I want to encourage you as you came in, uh, in your chair you would have found this card right here. It's our Connect card. We'd love to get some information from you so that we can follow up with you this next week. Uh, One of my favorite parts of my job is getting to know people in our community, following up with you, having dinner, having coffee, hearing your story, what kind of the Lord's been doing in your life, where you're at, um, and seeing if there's particular ways that we can pray for you, care for you, uh, and finding out if this is the church that the Lord would have you partner with to live your life for and with Jesus to make disciples in our community. And so um, I would encourage you to fill out that Connect card. There's a few things you can also do if this isn't your first time here, or if it is and you need to make some particular steps. If you, uh, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, but have not followed him in baptism, our next baptism gathering, our baptism service, is October 17th. That's right about a month away from now. And so if you fill out that card and you want to follow Jesus in baptism, check that box. Uh, We'll set up a time to start walking through that process for you to get baptized um, on that Sunday, if if you would like to. I would encourage you to. um, That's a biblical expectation that Jesus has for his disciples, that you follow him in baptism, displaying in the community, meaning the church, um, a public display of your faith, your new life in Jesus. So I'd encourage you uh, to, if that's you, we're doing it on the 17th. And then if you want to become a member of Trailview Church, our next members meeting is the first Sunday in October where we receive new members. And there's a process that we walk through with people who are interested in membership. Um, and, and we encourage you, if that's the next step you need to take, to check that box. You can also, if you want to join or visit a home group or serve in our kids ministry or somewhere else, preferably our kids ministry, because we need you there, um, you can check that box also. Um, um, and, uh, and so I want to encourage you to, to utilize this card as the Lord would lead you this morning. Uh, and on the back of it is a prayer card. Every Tuesday when Brandon and I get together and kind of talk through uh, this last Sunday, we spend a specific amount of time praying for one of our home groups and also any cards that we get with prayer requests. So uh, I don't know about you, about you, this week might have been like the best week of your life. It might have been the hardest week of your life or somewhere in between. Uh, my week over the last week and a half, probably the last two weeks, has been a bit of an emotional roller coaster, all particularly pertaining to being a parent. Um, and so um, whatever is going on in your life, we know that God cares and, and ask us to come humbly before him when we have needs. And so I encourage you, uh, we want to pray with you um, in those things. And so I encourage you to, to utilize this card. You can do a few things with it. You can drop it in the black box on the way out. You can bring it straight to myself or Pastor Brandon. We're typically around the group's wall area afterwards. Uh, or you can do it digitally with the QR code that's here on the bottom of both sides of the card. It's not the same QR code. So if you do the front one and you're like, oh, a prayer request, it's going to take you somewhere else. So use the one pertaining to that particular side of the card. So I would encourage you, if you're new here or you need to take some steps this morning, um, I would encourage you to utilize this card today. Um, Let me ask you a question to think through. Uh, What's the longest that you've ever waited for something? 
What's the longest that you've ever had to wait for something? Uh, maybe if you're a parent, it was nine months for your child to be born. Maybe if you're married, it was however many years before you got married. Uh, maybe it was for your Starbucks at the drive through line. I mean, like, whatever it was. What's the longest you've had to wait for things? Uh, like, here's the deal. Um, there is uh, this reality. We don't have to wait for very much in life. And because we don't have to wait for very much in life, we don't like to wait for things, right? We don't like to wait. Amen. We complain when things aren't timely. We complain when things should be done in this particular time frame and they're not. We're satisfied when it's earlier than anticipated or expected. And this might seem like a good thing that we don't have to wait or we don't like to wait, but I'm afraid we've lost something along the way. That we've lost something along the way as consumerism, technological developments have grown and developed in the, 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 in the period of waiting. That, that waiting feels horrible in the moment because we're out of control. It feels terrible, but waiting is actually good for your soul. It's good for you to learn to wait. It is. Because we've lost something. Think about it. Before 1940, you could eat fresh fruit only in the season it was grown. Think about that. Like it's been a hundred years ago that the refrigerator was invented and began to be like more widely accessible inside of people's actual homes. Amen. The 1920s, right? Praise God, right? Refrigerators, yeah, beautiful, beautiful thing. But now, guess what? You can eat strawberries in December, and you couldn't do that a hundred years ago because they they weren't available. They didn't last. We couldn't preserve them unless they were in jars or jams, and it's not the same thing. And technology has progressed. It's progressed in some really great ways. It's been a blessing, but it's also had uh, an impact to make us horribly impatient people. Now, think about this. The average watch time on a social media video is 10 seconds. Not 10 minutes. The average watched time on a social media video is 10 seconds. So if you make long videos on Facebook and you think everybody watches them, they don't. <laughs> they watched for 10 seconds. And if you can get your average viewership to 15 seconds, you're like killing it in the social media game. You are. Which, I mean, that sounds insane. It sounds crazy. It's also really sad. Consider this. On May 24th in 1844, um, if you wanted to send a message, you had to... Put it with the, you had to write a message out and give it to a courier, and they would take it across town and they deliver it to that person, or they would take it to another city or wherever it may be, and they would deliver that message by handwritten letter passed along. But but then in 1844, the U.S. built the first 35-mile city-to-city telegraph system using Morse code. The first moment when you could have a message, you wanted to get to somebody in a totally different city, 35 miles away, that you could go to the telegraph person, give them the message, they would send it across the way, down the 35 miles of wire, and they would get the message, transcribe it, write it out, and then deliver it. And you could, in a matter of maybe hours, maybe minutes, get a message across 35 miles of land in just a matter of a few minutes. 
we send text messages and we see the little three bubble thing pop up from the other person. We're like, oh, get it here. Where are they at? Where are they at? What are they going to say? What are they going to say? What are they going to say? Right? Because it's not fast enough. Why didn't you respond? Why didn't you respond? Right? Like uh, as, as technology has progressed, it's brought about a death of patience. It's brought about some really great, really wonderful things. But it's also cultivated in us this like consumeristic, I hate to wait life where everything should be available. Amazon's only heightened and, and amplified this. If I want something, like, what do I do? I go on Amazon and I find it and I buy it. My kids don't get commercials. Yesterday I was watching a TV show in the afternoon on my iPad. Boys cuddle up next to me and the show stops for a commercial. And they're like, what, what happened? What happened? What happened? Because <laughs> everything's instantly available now. You don't even have to wait till Wednesday evening or Friday evening to watch the show that you'll miss if you don't watch it, which is great. But it's had an impact on our relationship with God and our inability to be patient. It's had a relationship, an impact on our relationships with one another, with our inability to wait. And throughout the book of Mark, as we've walked through, we've, we've gotten to chapter 4, um, we're walking through the book of Mark, beholding Jesus our King. Jesus has said a few things along the way, pointing to this long, epic wait that the people of Israel have been on. Not like waiting for their fast food or the waiter to come take their drink order, but like waiting thousands of years for something. Generational waiting which is something I don't think we can even compute. That you might still be waiting for something that your grandparents were waiting for or hoping for. I think that may be a little bit more of a tangible experience for people who are minorities, who've, who've generationally lived in oppression. That their, their ancestors have been longing for or hoping for having a dream. Talk about that last week as an example. That they begin to, and generations later, experience more tangibly. But these people have been, the people Jesus is talking to in the Gospel of Mark, have been generationally waiting for the kingdom of God. For the king to arrive and usher in the eternal kingdom of God. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And today as we finish, um, as we finish these, this set of parables in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells one final, final parable particularly about the kingdom of God. And he clues us in with this parable on some attributes or things about the kingdom. I, I, I want to encourage you if, you, um, if you, if the idea of the kingdom of God is just like this foreign idea or concept to you, uh, I want to encourage you later today, um, go on YouTube and look up the Bible project and type in the kingdom of God. And watch that short little four-minute video that will help unpack for you that this idea of the kingdom of God isn't a... Israel, Judah, King David, okay, that's gone, that's over moment. It's a narrative of the kingdom of God from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through to Revelation when the kingdom is finally here for all of eternity. That it's not a distant thing. We, in, in our context particularly, um, the idea of a kingdom doesn't really compute because we live in a democracy. And the idea of God's kingdom and the church, we're like, how does this fit? 
Um, so it's a helpful little short little video that'll clue you into what God's been at work to do to establish his kingdom all along the way. And so today we're going to be looking at this as the main point. Jesus is the king who brought the kingdom. Jesus is the king who brought the kingdom. And so we're going to look at this, the kingdom and the king, um, through three different points. The kingdom, one, two, the king, three, life under the king. So I encourage you, if you have your Bibles, stick with me there in Mark chapter 4, verse 30. We're going to start with the kingdom. Verse 30 says this, And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? Now, Jesus clues his audience, this crowd of people along the side of the sea, into what he's talking about right now. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Something that everyone in this crowd is like, Oh, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Every, every Saturday when we go to church, because that's what Jews do, and every, every holiday we celebrate, the rhythms of our life in, in celebration on a weekly basis, on a, uh, on a monthly, on an annual basis, the Sabbath is like a, a moment to remember what life might be like one day in the kingdom of God where we can rest for all of eternity and enjoy all the pleasures of God and Him. Like their rhythm and pattern centered around this idea of the kingdom of God. And so this is incredibly significant when Jesus clues in and says, what can we compare the kingdom of God to? Everyone's ears perk up and go like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa wait a second. The kingdom of God. Yeah, this is, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. It's something that they, uh, they've been longing and waiting for, particularly for God to restore his people through a promised king in the likeness of David a kingdom that would, would be an eternal king and have a king that would rule over the entire earth. Now Jesus says, like, hey, how can we understand this kingdom? Well, what is the kingdom of God? Uh, one uh, author, he put it this way. So the kingdom is three things. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place. So it's the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. Uh, uh, John Piper explains it as this. It's the kingdom of God is God's sovereign action to redeem a people and then at a future time finish it and renew the universe completely into a universal kingdom of God. Not universal in salvation, but universal in place. Kingdom of God forever. When Jesus unpacks and starts talking about this kingdom, this audience has a particular idea in mind. It's this idea of, um, all right, ruler comes in, establishes a kingdom, kicks out the Romans, defeats their armies, sets up Israel as a nation with a king on a throne to rule forever. Like an actual militant action on God's part through a king to establish the nation of Israel. Jesus unpacking in just a few moments what the kingdom is, has a different understanding. Not just understanding. Uh, He's unveiling this. The people were both right and wrong about what the kingdom of God would be. And he unveils this throughout the entire Gospels in multiple places, that the kingdom of God is both a future hope and a current reality. That the kingdom of God, for uh, who he's talking to, For you and I is both a future hope and it is a current reality. This one Jesus says in teaching his disciples how to pray. Maybe you know this this prayer, the the Lord's Prayer. He says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or honored be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That he teaches his disciples to pray and says, pray that God's kingdom would come. 
pointing to a future kingdom, a future reality of the kingdom of God. That there's some aspect of this kingdom that's not yet, but will be in the future. But also Jesus talks about the kingdom as if it had arrived. That it was a current reality with him on earth. He says this in in Mark 1. We saw this last year. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That Jesus says both your kingdom come and the kingdom is here. That he says both this is a future reality and a current reality. In Luke 11, he he says it this way. In talking to the Pharisees and they're trying to catch Jesus and say that he's possessed by Satan, he says, if, you, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, which is a like, big demon god, um, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judge. But if, I, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That if Jesus is casting out demons by the power of God, the kingdom is here. A current reality. And later on in Luke 17, Jesus says this. He says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in the way that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is both a a future hope and future reality, and it is when Jesus comes a current reality. Reality. For you and I, the kingdom of God is both a now thing, his power over his people in his place, is both a now reality and a future hope. A a kingdom future where there is no evil, where there is no sin, no sickness, no death. Where life is with God and his people in perfection for all of eternity. That kingdom. And for this audience, for that are, that are listening to this, they've experienced a wading through what seems like failure after failure after failure for the kingdom of God. You think about the garden. In the Garden of Eden, God creates everything perfect, and he gives Adam and Eve a borrowed authority to exercise as kings and queens over creation. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, to exercise the borrowed kingly authority as sons and daughters, princes and princesses of God as king over the earth. What happens? They get exiled because of their sin. And you fast forward to to the kingdom of Israel, actually established. They come out of Egypt. They establish the kingdom of God. They got a little short run of good kings and terrible kings and back and forth. And what happens? It ends in exile. That on repeat, these people waiting for the kingdom of God have seen what feels like failure after failure after failure. Why? Because they're looking for the wrong kingdom, the wrong thing. They have bad expectations for what the kingdom of God will be. They, they think that this future hope kingdom will come then, now, and not a future hope. And so when Jesus arrives and says the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom is here, he's saying both current and future reality. That for you and I, the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is not a, uh, a Jesus, like it is Jesus-centric, but it doesn't start, the word gospel is not started by Jesus. 
The good news of the coming kingdom goes all the way back into Isaiah. When everybody was captive in Babylon. How beautiful are the feet that bring the good news well in captivity, well in Babylon, was a future prophecy of a coming kingdom that would come. So as these people waited and waited and waited, Jesus shows up and says, How can we, what can we compare to the kingdom? How can we understand the kingdom of God? How can we? And the reality for us is we're 2,000 years later than Jesus says this. But every one of us, deep inside of our hearts, long for this kingdom. We long for the kingdom of God. That in every holy and good desire that wells up inside of our hearts, unveils a longing for a kingdom better than the one we're in now. That every moment where we long for justice, we're echoing this reality that this kingdom is broken and we need a better kingdom. That every moment when we experience suffering and we have longings for life without pain, there's a longing for God's kingdom. That every moment we experience love from one another, it echoes in, his, in our hearts this desire for a kingdom filled with love. That every time we celebrate as a people, whether it's birthdays or holidays or we have parties, like every time we do that, it's because deep within inside of us is a longing for a kingdom of celebration. Longing for a joy that is never ending. That every single one of us, deep within our hearts, long for the kingdom of God. Every one of us do. And in the same way, in every evil and sinful desire that dwells up inside of us, is a resistance to that very king and kingdom. That there's this war raging within us. That we want this kingdom. We want a kingdom with no sin, with no death, with no pain, with only good and joy and life, with no sickness. I was talking to Noah and Levi, my sons, the other day about heaven, and they were like, there's no viruses there? It's like, no. <laughs> it's weird to be seven and say that, I'm sure. Uh, but deep within our hearts, we long for this kingdom because we're created by a king in his image, as his image bears, for this kind of kingdom. That we are created to be kingdom people, his kingdom. That by faith in the gospel, we belong to something so much bigger than us. We belong to his kingdom. His rescue plan to establish this kingdom. We belong to this kingdom. Far and much deeper than any other allegiances we might have should be our allegiances to the kingdom of God. And that we feel this tension because we are kingdom exiles. Like we belong to a different kingdom and we're in a place where we don't really fit. And we long for, we experience in, in, in some ways the current realities of the kingdom, but we long for its actual ushering in real presence for eternity. 
And that our, our, as Christians, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, your allegiances should be to Him as King and His kingdom above every other kingdom. Above all other institutions, above all other nationalities, your, your allegiance ought to first and exclusively be to Jesus and His kingdom. And here's the tension. These people wanted this kingdom, just like you and I do. We want the kingdom of God. But we can't have the kingdom without the king. Like, we can't have the kingdom of God without the king of the kingdom. Like, our world rages to cultivate and create that ideal utopian kingdom without the king. And it falls short every single time. Because we make really bad kings. Even if we divide up the power and we lead in community, we make really bad kings. So if we, like these people, are waiting and longing, which we should be, for the kingdom of God, we can't have it without the king. So the second thing that we see here, second point, first one, the kingdom, second one, the king. Jesus is the king of of the kingdom. Mark 4:31 says this, it'll be up on the screen. To what can we compare the kingdom of God? He says this. It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown as the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. This is as Jesus begins to unpack this kingdom, he uses this story, this illustration, this parable of a mustard seed sown, planted in the ground. Um, We don't have mustard trees around here. We don't. Um, The Bible is the primary place where the mustard seed is used in teaching uh, as an illustration across history. And so when Jesus begins to unveil to us the kingdom of God, he begins by describing the kingdom of God as the smallest of seeds on the earth. That the, 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 the kingdom of God is the smallest of seeds, the mustard seed. And it falls into the crack, into the ground, and it is sown, it is planted into the ground. What does Jesus mean? Does he mean we're small? No. Who is Jesus talking about when he says this small mustard seed? Is he talking about the entire kingdom? No, here's the deal. When Jesus is describing the kingdom of God as this, this uh, initial grain of mustard seed, he's pointing to something. That, that, that individual seed represents an individual. In, in its smallness, it represents a person. And it's not Adam, it's not Abraham, it's not Moses, it's not David. It's Jesus. That Jesus is referring to himself as this grain of mustard seed. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says this. It'll be up on the screen for us. It says, For he grew up before men like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. And Jesus is, is prophesied as being this plant that would grow up out of the ground, this root that would spout up out of dry ground. Now, I did a little research thinking about mustard seeds. Mustards, mustard trees grow in dry, desertous, arid climates with sandy soil where water quickly drains out of it, um, where it's hard to grow other crops. And the mustard seed being the smallest of seeds is pointing to Jesus in his humility to come as that plant to be planted with no majesty or beauty to be found in him, no desire to be the smallest, unnoticeable of seeds. Pointing to this reality that Jesus is the seed that falls into the ground. That Jesus, by his death, falling into the ground, his burial establishes himself and the kingdom as the king. And that it's a kingdom not established by brute military force or rule, which is what perplexed so many people that he was talking to. It's not a king who rides in on chariots, but who's brought in on a baby donkey. It's not a king who's robed in gold and fine crown, but a king who, who, who's crowned with thorns and, 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 yes, robed, but in mockery. And yes, announced, but by mockery above his head on the cross, the king of the Jews, written in all three language for all the people to know. That Jesus is the seed that falls into the ground via his own death. That he's lifted up in glory on a cross as king. And he dies to establish this kingdom. This is what he points out in John 12, 23 and 24. It'll be on the screen here. It says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Which sounds like, cool, the king's going to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about himself as that single grain of wheat or the single mustard seed that falls into the ground. That by his death, he establishes himself as the king over the kingdom, ushering it in, planting it into the earth where it will then grow and bear much fruit. But by Jesus' death and resurrection, He establishes His kingdom, and then He arises, ascends into heaven to sit on His heavenly throne until one day He descends again to sit on His earthly throne in the established future-hoped kingdom for all of eternity. That this parable of the kingdom puts Jesus front and center as this mustard seed that falls into the ground. That he is the initiator, the establisher of the kingdom in his death. That the kingdom comes about by him, the king, not in glory, but in humble death. That there is no kingdom without the death of the King, Jesus. In the same way, there is no kingdom for you or I without faith in the King's death in your place. 
And Jesus is pointing to us here today that we must believe that He is the King who came to die in our place to establish His kingdom for all of eternity. By faith in Jesus alone, do we become sons and daughters, citizens of that kingdom. By faith in Jesus alone. And that we can toil and work alongside the world to cultivate the kingdom that we desire without the King, but we will fail. But by faith in Jesus alone, believing the truth of the gospel, you can become citizens of the already not yet kingdom of God for all of eternity. So I want to encourage you, if you have not confessed your sin to the Lord and asked Him to save you and forgive you, believed in your heart that God sent Him to die on the cross for your sins, to rise from the dead in your place, that you would believe the truth of the gospel that Jesus did that today and be saved. Saved from wrath towards sin and ushered into an eternal kingdom as a son or daughter of the King. And for us that have, for you that if you've put your faith in Jesus, we need to begin to embrace this reality of the kingdom, that the King works powerfully through very small things. That, that Jesus establishes His kingdom through weakness and death. And he says, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He invites us into that same humble, unlikely, upside-down kingdom by embracing our weakness and humbly coming before him with that weakness so that he might do mighty miracles in the kingdom of God. Think about it. Our words have kingdom impact in other people's lives. Words. Words. I mean, James talks about words as, as, although we think they're light, as having the power to set forests ablaze. That our words have massive impact in the kingdom, in the lives of citizens, brothers, sisters, sons and daughters of the kingdom, and in the lives of those who have yet to believe in Jesus, who might become parts of the kingdom. So we go and we share the gospel. Our words ought to be a means by which, in their humble form, the Lord uses to work powerfully through small things in the kingdom. And our actions. So you think about like the power of kindness. Like it's small. The power of compassion. That the Lord can take small, simple things and work powerfully in the kingdom. This is what Paul says, for when I am weak, his power is made perfect. So we ought to embrace a life like Jesus that doesn't seek recognition, power, and glory, but seeks humble, die-to-self servanthood for the good of the kingdom and the kingdom and other people, that other people would believe the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus is the king of the kingdom. We can't have the kingdom without faith in Jesus, and by faith in Jesus we begin to experience now even more of that kingdom reality. So what does life under this kingdom look like? What does life under the king look like? Well, this parable continues to unpack this. It doesn't only show us that Jesus is 
The, the one who ushers in and plants himself in the ground by his death to bring about the kingdom. It also, in this parable, unpacks for us aspects of what life under the king in this kingdom looks like. In verses 32 through 34, he says this, Yet when it is sown, the smallest of seeds, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out its large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he didn't speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples explained everything. So what does life under the kingdom look like? What's the fruit and produce of this tiny seed, the gospel planted in the ground, in our hearts, in our lives? Well, he, he describes it as uh, its growth to become larger than all of the other garden plants. You see, the, uh, the mustard seed plants in the ground in an arid climate, and it grows up to become the largest of the plants in the garden or in the field. The mustard trees can grow up to 12 feet tall, spreading their branches out over, providing all kinds of shelter and shade and such over the whole area. That he's describing this kingdom as a kingdom that is constantly expanding. It's constantly growing. And it's growing in such a way that although it may be slow, it's rapidly multiplying in growth to become the largest of kingdoms. That the kingdom of God, life under the kingdom, means a multiplying growth in the kingdom. So for us... There's this, this, this resting reality that God will multiply His kingdom. That the kingdom of God will grow and nothing can come and chop it down. Every other tree in the Bible, the tree of life, the, the, the stump that's cut down in Israel that will sprout the root in Jesse, Jesus, all of them are cut down. This one isn't cut down. Nothing can overtake or overcome or destroy God's kingdom because it's a multiplying, continuing to grow kingdom. But how? How does the kingdom of God multiply and expand? See, God in His kindness and in His sovereign will has, has created the kingdom to expand by the power of the Holy Spirit at work through the kingdom to share the gospel, evangelism. That the kingdom grows when we as citizens of the kingdom live as ambassadors of the kingdom in exile. That the kingdom multiplies when we live our lives on mission to make disciples of Jesus. That God has entrusted you and I, citizens of this kingdom, with the multiplication of the kingdom by making disciples. By knowing your neighbors in such a way that you can speak and act in light of the king. That this kingdom is constantly multiplying in growth. And we hold a large responsibility for that. Not the final responsibility, but the responsibility to be sharing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Another thing that it's describing in this this parable is that the kingdom is life-giving. That the mustard seed, by its very nature, was planted in gardens to provide shade in a desert land. 
And the farmers would plant other crops underneath the mustard seed tree. Because in a desert, dry land, shade was nowhere to be found. And so the kingdom of God, as it spreads its branches out over the land, it provides the shade necessary for plants to grow up under. Well, pointing to this, that the kingdom of God, yes, it's a multiplying, growing kingdom, but it's also a life-giving kingdom that provides shade in hard, dry, desert climates from scorching heat from the sun. That the kingdom of God, what we live like as God's people, ought to be life-giving to the world around us. That we ought to, in our lives, live in such a way that we provide space, shade from the hard, dry, desert heat of life to those around us. That the church, as as an embassy of this kingdom, should be a life-giving source to the world around us. Do others experience you as somebody who brings life and joy to their life? Do others experience you as somebody who sucks the life and joy out of a room when you walk into it? or your relationships, or the office, or your neighborhood. We as citizens of this kingdom, as members of this kingdom, ought to live in such a way that in our delight in Jesus, we're a source of life and joy by the power of the Holy Spirit every day to those who live in the shade of the branches of this kingdom. In our hearts, in compassion, in our words, in our choices, and our generosity, and our kindness to be a source of life to those around us in the shade of this kingdom so that they might become a part of it, become sons and daughters of the king. The other thing that this parable points out in, in describing this kingdom is that this kingdom is a refuge. What does he say? That it puts out its branches and they're large so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. That the kingdom of God provides shelter. It's a place of refuge. Particularly, interesting moment here, a refuge to birds. What do birds do to seed? They eat it. Like a refuge to people who once sought to devour the fruit of the tree. This is, this is like so many ways, points out to all of us who were once enemies of the kingdom, who are now found shelter in the kingdom. Think about Paul. He was seeking to destroy the kingdom of God. Yet he finds refuge and shelter in its branches. The kingdom of God, the church as an embassy of it, should be a place where those who were or are enemies of God, much like you and I were or, or, or in our lives, might find refuge and shelter. Where, where the world might come and find rest and hope and eternal life by faith in the King. 
Like our lives ought to bear fruit in such a way that we are a refuge to those who are refugees in our world. Those who are wounded, those who are vulnerable, those who are victims. Those who, who now or previously have deconstructed their faith and will one day come to this realization that they, what they're missing is God. Like, will, will, will the church be a place where those who have turned away from God and come to this realization that they've walked away from Him are embraced back or are like, nope, you had your chance and stiff-armed? The church should be a place, God's embassy of the kingdom on earth, that is a refuge to those who are currently or have previously deconstructed their faith. What about to the LGBTQ plus community? People who, uh, who've, who've chosen a sexual lifestyle that God's word would say leads to, to, to suffering, pain, and destruction in their own life. And when they find that that reigns true, will we be a people that open our arms and welcome them in, where they can find life, hope, restoration to all that sin has broken in them, just like you and I. The kingdom of God is a refuge to the broken. It should be. We should be a people who are multiplying in growth, who are life-giving to those around us, and who are a refuge and open welcome arms to those who come to the realization that they in their brokenness need Jesus. And so Jesus describes the kingdom, that he is the seed that dies, that grows up into a kingdom that is life-giving and a refuge to those who are in need across the world. All longing for one day when that kingdom is finally here in its permanence in new earth where there's no pain, sickness, death, suffering. Where he rules and reigns in glorious, merciful, kind kingship over all things. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. He longs to be king of your life, your heart, so that you would become a citizen of that kingdom. So I don't know if for you today that means you need to put your faith in him, make him king, submit to him as king. He is king already. If it looks like beginning to live as the kingdom of God ought to be in your own personal life, towards those around you. That God is establishing a kingdom that we belong to. A kingdom where His church is an embassy of that kingdom, offering hope and life to all those who need Him, need hope and life. We're going to finish this morning by coming to the King's table.